Hello and welcome to Ditching Hourly. I'm Jonathan Stark and today I am joined by interviewer Peter Mobley. Peter, welcome to the show. Thank you. Uh, it's great to be here. It's quite an honor actually. Oh, that's nice. So for folks who are just hearing your name for the first time, can you tell them a little bit about who you are and what you do? Yeah, what's funny is you and I probably have a similar background. Um, I started coding websites from the age of 14 years old. Um, started getting paid by uh, businesses who at the time, well, this is like maybe 20 years ago now, um, having a website was kind of a luxury. In fact, as you know, back in that, that area, yep. uh, mobile development wasn't even invented yet, really. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's kind of where I started. Um, a huge passion for marketing and helping businesses grow. And uh, since then, I've been marketing businesses for uh, Global Fortune 5000s, uh, had Fortune 500 clients throughout the years. But now being you know, a, a business owner and doing it on the agency side, I really want to focus on helping B2Bs. And that's where we kind of found our niche. Mm-hmm. Okay. And the reason I introduced you as the interviewer is because you reached out to say, hey, wouldn't would, would you be open to... Uh, me interviewing you, that sounds confusing. So Peter interviewing Jonathan uh, to get at some of the specific things that sometimes we don't get to when I get interviewed on another podcast because they aren't really familiar with a lot of the basic stuff. So we spend a lot of time on that and then don't always get to nitty gritties or specifics. Uh, I try to, but, but sometimes they're just not ready to hear the really specific details. So this might be one of those episodes where it gets super tactical and specific. Um, but let's just, uh, yeah, let's just leave it there. Where should we start? Like, where's the, what was the thing that inspired you to reach out? Yeah. So that's a great question. Um, you constantly hear these stories with you on other podcasts and you introducing your stories and where you discover this, uh, rat race of hourly billing Mm. and, you know, being an agency owner and you were part of a, uh, I think it was a software company that you were with yeah. before mm-hmm. managing a team mm-hmm. and you were going through this struggle. Um, I could, I could really hear it in your voice through these, through these podcasts and how hourly billing isn't the right way to go. Mm-hmm. And you brought it to the owner and you asked him at your old firm, um, let the, you, and you showed them what the problem was for hourly billing and how to bring it over or what, why value pricing should be the way to go. Mm-hmm. And he agreed with you. What's amazing is you stopped there. <laughs> I want yeah. to hear more. <laughs> okay. Uh, so, so it's, yeah. Yeah. It's, um, my, it's been so long. I mean, that was like 2005 or yeah, 2005 when that conversation would have taken place. And I've, in my memory, you're, you're summarizing it very well. It's compressing a few things on the timeline uh, that I think would be important to separate. So while I was at that firm and when I had that epiphany, you know, I brought it to the owner, Chris, and he was like, he understood in theory, but then he was his, I think his exact question was, but how would we do that? And at that point in time, I had not discovered value pricing yet. I just knew that hourly was causing all of the all of the stress and and problems that the typical agency or dev shop would face. And instead, you know, and I was like, okay, I identified the problem, but at that point in time, I did not have a solution. I didn't know what the solution was. I knew it was fixed bids of some kind, but I I'm pretty I'm pretty sure I did not discover value based fees by Alan Weiss until after I moved from Atlanta to Rhode Island back home. Uh, I'm pretty sure that's where I found that book. And I'm pretty sure that was the first time I had ever heard of it. So it's probable that even, even if I had been aware of it at the time, there's a difference between knowing the problem and then knowing the solution and then implementing the solution. So he got it in theory, but it was kind of like, well, how would we switch to fixed bids? We've tried that and it's not gone well. And my answer was kind of like, I don't know. So rather than, rather than be up nights worried about, you know, 10 people's mortgage instead of just my mortgage. I was like, mm, maybe I should test this out on my own first. So that was kind of the genesis of that. And there were other things going on. Like, you know, we were, my wife got a job back home. You know, so there's a few things going on that at the time that made sense for me to go solo. Yeah. Okay. So does that, does that change anything 
I think so. So if I remember right, your exact question, or rather a summary of the question you asked him, or rather he asked you was, how do we transition where the hours were baked into everything about the business? Yes. Our culture, the processes, even the calculation of profitability to some approach Mm -hmm. like to value pricing. Yeah, the software, uh, we had a bunch of software systems, the employee incentivization, uh, in, is I'm saying that right? The employee incentives were based around billable hours. So yeah, yeah it was like everything. Everything was, it was a core assumption. It was like assuming we were going to have internet access. It was just that, it's just an assumption and you built on top of that, almost like that platform. I would look at it now as a business model almost. It's not quite, but it's almost a business model. It's like we're going to build by the hour for our time and, and, it yeah, and was, today the software is like almost like SaaS uh, subscriptions. That's big then. Mm-hmm. Right. So it did take it. So I went solo. And since I didn't have any baggage, I didn't have any minds to change. Uh, my mind was already changed. And then I found this book, which became my Bible for probably three years. Um, I figured it out, you know, and, and the it took me probably, it's hard to remember exactly, but I remember it taking a really long time, probably more than a year for me to really get my head around the why conversation and doing scope last instead of trying to solve problems in my head in the sales meeting and trying to come up with scope even though i knew that i wasn't going to base my price on scope it was such an ingrained habit to try and uncover scope in the sales meeting that it took me a really long time to wean myself off of that approach and instead hunt for value the entire time and not worry about the scope because the scope is indeterminate until we figure out what the value is going to be. Like you can't have a, it makes no sense to even float a price if, if it's unclear what the outcome is worth to the buyer. So that took a long time. I I think you and I both struggle with that. uh, Probably more so myself in trying to solve the problem in that meeting. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So stepping back is really valuable to be able to do that. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so then the other thing that comes up is, um, over time now I've been doing this, what is it? Uh, can I do the math? What year is it? 222. So what's that? 16 years later. And primarily I work with people who, who are soloists or really small firms. And, and it's one thing I noticed a couple of phases I went through. So there's a sort of phase for call it. I mean, the first year I did really well. I, I thought I was doing value-based pricing. I probably wasn't doing a great job of it, but I was doing fixed pricing for sure. And I was getting better at it. I was practicing it. And, and then I, and then I got it down. I was like, okay, I've got this. And that's right around the time. I'm going to say that's probably around 2009. So maybe three years later, I was like, yeah, I know how this works. But then I needed to learn when people were asking me how it works. And I found that it was tougher to teach it to someone than it was for me to figure it out in my one way that would work for me because other people have different constraints, different cash flow issues, different kinds of businesses, uh, different marketing approaches that are a good fit for them. So it was like the thing that worked for me wasn't didn't work for everybody I worked with. So then there became a phase where I needed to figure out how to apply what I learned in my own little laboratory into people who are in very different situations uh, you know, and that whole process of being able to communicate and teach the information is a learning process unto itself. And the reason I bring that up is because that's the, uh, the, the focus on soloists or small firms made that easier because the, the surface area of exceptions was a lot lower. Especially, you know, it's like solo software developers. Like there's not that many differences between the business of a solo software developer from one person to the other. But when you start talking about like, oh, I've got a photography firm where it's me and, and two assistants, it's like a very different set of base propositions. So it, there was a while where I had to really learn how to teach it, how to meet people where they were and kind of give them the information in a way where it was going to make sense and then hopefully inspire them to take some kind of action. And lately, so that was another phase. And then lately, it seems the the questions I've been getting more and more questions, like kind of like my old boss, Chris asked me in 2005, where he was like, okay, I get it, but we have, you know, 10, 15 employees. Like how would I actually make this transition? So I'm starting to, I'm, I'm at the beginning of the journey I have some experience, but not as much as I'd like at the beginning of the journey of, of, of implementing value pricing in a decent size agency model, 
where you've got a bunch of employees and it things like employee incentives start to come up. Things like morale start to come up. Things like shifting the culture start to come up. None of those things mattered with me. I just went solo and I, you know, or with most soloists, they can turn on a dime. So, yeah. So, it, so what's your situation um, in terms of employees or contractors and, and where your leads come from, what kind of projects you do? So just give people a picture of like that kind of, that kind of level of detail. Yeah. Um, yeah. We could start with probably the projects. What we do for clients is really ship them from this plateau that they've been on for a while and, or they are a startup and they want to get really noticed. Like, Hey, we figured out our process. We figured out our product. It's gaining traction, but we've, we're kind of stuck in this certain revenue. And so we work with businesses who have 10 million per year revenue to get them up to the 25 mark or 25 million to get them up to the 50 or hundred mark. So our product offerings vary. So it could be website design, be social media management. It could be um, uh, outreach campaigns. Uh, it really just varies. Um, we've, we've even done some really cool uh, um, website um, web applications. And we also have a, a SaaS product that we sell. Mm-hmm. So um, it's in private beta right now. Mm-hmm. but it's doing very well. Um, cool. So that's kind of like the product side for our employee situation right now. We're in a corporate transition uh, structure-wise, but eventually we're going to get into bringing in employees full-time paid by the, the company. Mm-hmm. But right now we're, we're very agile in the way that we have 40 individuals across seven different time zones mm-hmm. working on different projects as they come through. Mm-hmm. So it's really nice to be able to have that flexibility. They all they all build, uh, you know, hourly. Mm-hmm. And so, how do you incentivize when you're not billing hourly? How do you incentivize people who are coming in now? So that's that's kind of what we're wondering. Let me turn Very, that around. And if, if you were billing yourself at hourly, how would you incentivize them? Um, yeah. So one one of our clients uh, brought us into this this uh, team building exercise with uh, a sister company out in uh, Glendale, California. Mm-hmm. And this is a Berkshire-owned company where uh, uh, Peter Kaufman ri- writes the book for uh, uh, Warren Buffett's right-hand guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he, he was telling a story about how they compensate employees. And it's all profit share. It's pretty amazing what they do. Mm-hmm. If the company is performing, incentivize them based on their little 100 unit cluster of of that group producing that product but they can get bonuses up to 100 of their monthly salary each month if they're really performing mm-hmm. it's quite quite remarkable and it works uh trader joe's does something similar but um they don't really incentivize their employees this way but they do it for their vendors so they pay them a little bit extra to really get the insight knowledge. That's the whole reason why the flowers are fresh every single day. Or, or uh, yeah, they bring in the their flower vendors bring new flowers in each, each day, mm-hmm. and they're able to cut costs on certain things, and and they really pay the the vendors a little bit more to get a better product. It's pretty amazing. Great. But the same thing can be applied to employees. Sure. So it, why not do that? We could. Um, <laughs> how, how do we price that in? So does, if, if you're talking about contractors, I mean, on the one hand, pay, paying people by the hour is, a really, is really bad for them and it's bad for the seller and it's good for the buyer from a cost standpoint as long as you're getting the results that you're looking for in roughly in the amount of time or for the amount of money that you want to spend. So you're probably getting a great deal if you're good at, project managing and getting people who aren't flakes. So it's not, you know, from a contractor standpoint, I would say it is on the contractors to be the ones to say, no, I'm not doing this anymore. Um, it's a, it's a great way to get decent interchangeable help fast and cheap, you know, go to Upwork or have a network of freelancers who don't really understand the value that they're creating for your business. 
or don't care to understand is really, it's not that they couldn't, it's just, they just don't ask those questions. They're just more focused on like, I'm a great copywriter. I'm a great SEO person. And they just like do it for essentially cost and they're happy for a while. Yeah. For a while. Right. <laughs> yeah. Until they start getting, you know, three years later, they start getting undercut by the new crop of freelancers yeah. who can charge less. Then they start looking for people like me. It's like, how do I, yeah. how do I escape from Upwork? All right. So on, on the one hand, I would say that yeah, I would suggest that it's possible that you don't need to change anything. If you decided to value price your, your clients, you know, it's really, you could incentivize your employees however you want to give them more per hour than they're asking for or whatever, you know, to keep them from jumping ship and going to another client or to keep them available so that, you know, you can, you don't need to keep them busy all the time, but you know, at the drop of a hat, they will, they will respond to when you do have a project for them, you know, something like that. Uh, you don't have to get too complicated. I think it gets much more, much more complicated when you have full-time employees. And that's the transition we're right. thinking about. Yeah. So the first question is, what's your, uh, I don't want to get too into your like guts of your business. It's not the point of this, but the first question I would ask myself is, do I really need to do that? Like, what is the, is there a strategic reason why I need to do that? Or is it, what, what's driving that decision? You don't have to answer that. I'm just, I would just say to myself, is this really how I want to grow the business? Do I want to grow it in this way or with the same number of people or maybe even fewer people? Uh, if I could increase my, continue to increase my revenue with smaller headcount, would that be attractive? And if, if, if you see, I've talked to some people who would say, no, the kind of impact, I can't do that because the kind of impact I want to have on the world, it's usually like a big, big picture mission type person. I'll never get there by myself. I need a team of people to, to execute all these details, uh, in order to have a snowball's chance in hell of making a dent in uh, climate change or clean water or malaria or whatever the thing is. Yeah. And that's it's funny. You mentioned climate change. because A lot of our clients are in that sector. Mm -hmm. um, also funny. You mentioned with, uh, you know, going alone because they're, they're, I don't know if you've heard this saying, but if you want to go fast, go alone. Mm -hmm. If you want to go far, go together. Mm-hmm. That's so applicable. That's really the reason why we are transitioning to employee-based uh, work. Um, really to find the talent and to keep them there, uh, really, really thinking about this bigger picture, bigger project, more SaaS product, a lot, of, a lot more SaaS product that we just can't, we can't outsource that. We're trying to build some really cool technology that, kind of well you know it might end up displacing a lot of the content management systems out there that's currently being offered okay so just to be clear i want to make sure i'm understanding you're building software to sell not you're it's not software you're building for clients yes <laughs> okay just wanted to make that's what i thought you meant but yeah um yeah so i mean that's a totally different business model completely yeah. different business model so uh and it and you wouldn't be doing Value. Once you got there, you wouldn't be doing value. Presumably, you wouldn't be selling it on a value basis. You'd be selling it on some either usage or whatever, you know, SaaS basis, maybe yeah. a, annual contracts or service level agreements or stuff like that, um, which you can still, you can value price anything really, but it does mean that you're, you're going to complicate your sales process quite a bit. So if you're doing enterprise B2B sales, it's probably already pretty complicated. So in theory, you, you could and long, like a long lead time. So in theory, you could value price clients. Uh, it's not traditionally, it's not what you've, what I've seen traditionally in SaaS. That's more old school, like SAP, stuff like that. It's like the, the newer stuff doesn't seem like it's going in that direction, but I could be no, it's not. They're, way behind. Yeah, they're legacy products. So, you know, we're doing like NoSQL databases now where mm -hmm. everything's document management instead of table managed. Right. It's pretty fun. Yeah. Yeah. It's great. I love that stuff. So, okay. So then the question becomes, well, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it, the question could become as we, what does the transition look like as we increase our expenses dramatically, probably, right? If you're, okay. yeah. So, uh, increase expenses dramatically. How do we deal with cash flow while we scale up the revenue? So then it kind of comes full circle back to your old boss, right? At the software firm. Mm -hmm. Well, if you, we, if you were placed right back, if you're plopped in 2005 mm -hmm. and you were responding to, but how do we implode? 
Right. <laughs> yeah. I would. How yep. would you answer him today? Today I would do it in a uh, staged. I'm. I'm pretty. I, I would say I have a medium risk tolerance, and and I think that's fair to say about Chris, the my former employer. And you know, it's like you don't want to crash the plane, uh, but you do want to turn it. So I would do it in. I would do it in probably in phases. I would probably offer a productized service of some kind. It's probably some kind of discovery roadmap thing, a fixed price thing that we would be able to put, you know, our best people on, get really good at it, really good at delivering a high amount of value in a small amount of time for a good amount of money and start to wean ourselves off of 100% hourly income. And in fact, one of the things that we did do back then, which is fairly common with platform style vendors, we were a FileMaker development shop. So, you know, platform there these days, it would be Salesforce or Shopify or something like that. And you would, you can offer training on the platform, which was, I think it was reasonably lucrative, but we never took it super seriously. It was kind of like, uh, it was kind of like, a, well, it's nice, nice money when you can get it, but not a huge deal, but it's incredibly low risk and it's all paid up front and uh, positions you as an expert for your other work. So I'd probably, uh, probably go harder into training. Uh, come up with like that road mapping productized service. And I would over time as we got better at it and got more testimonials about it, I would increase the price. And I'd be looking for a project that I'd be looking for a, a new client, not an existing client. I'd be looking for a new client, a prospect to come through that had a just a obvious home run. Like they come the perfect fit, perfect fit client <clears throat> on a small to medium sized project that even if I was wildly wrong and it took us twice as long to do it as I expect, as I would guess in a scope first scenario, I'd say there's no way we can screw this up. If we screw this up, I would give them their money back. I would be so mortified, like professional embarrassment. If we can't do this simple thing and crush it for this, for this client who is going to stand to gain just a massive business value out of. So I'd be looking for that perfect client where the urgency is really high the the expensive problem that we're solving for them is very painful like a huge you know we're losing forty thousand dollars a month because we can't send out our invoices fast enough and by the time we do they're expired and that people don't have to pay them so if we're losing forty thousand dollars a month through inefficiency i'd be like this is yeah this is definitely going to you know nothing's easy nothing's as easy as you think it's going to be but that's a no-brainer for like a filemaker firm where you're building a workflow software or work group software to streamline a workflow it's like a total slam dunk and if they stand to benefit you know even if we only cut the loss the breakage in half they stand to benefit like twenty thousand dollars a month in the first year you know two hundred and forty thousand dollars if i'm doing the math yeah so it's like if we couldn't do this for you know, 50 grand, then we don't deserve to call ourselves experts. So that's what I would look for. I would look for an obvious home run project for a, an ideal value buyer and just knock it out of the park, right? Put best, the best people on it. I would take my very best developer or two, put them on it, just be like, plan it out, not waterfall, but plan out what we're going to do. And then, yeah. And then the job becomes, making sure you can manage the client around scope creep, right? Cause then you get a fixed price and it's like, yeah. all right, the faster we get to this success criteria, the happier everyone's going to be. Yeah. So, and I, I see scope creep either making or breaking firms. Of course. Right. And usually when people have tried fixed price before they did cost plus, And since they didn't yeah. uncover the desired, well, it's since they couldn't have possibly uncovered all of the scope first, the price is always too low. So the, the scope is just, it just, it's always too low because they're, they agreed to this list of orders that the client self-prescribed instead of backing up and saying, wait, what, what are we actually trying to solve here and finding a better way, a cheaper way, a faster way? Cause that's less risky for everyone mm. and it can be just as profitable, if not more profitable. So yeah, that's, that's the, that was, that's probably, that's another thing I think that is a, it takes us as a skill that takes a little bit of time to uh, figure out is when you switch off of hourly, when every bit of scope creep is going to be money in your pocket, eventually you're going to have a fight with the client about it, but today it's money in your pocket and, and flipping it so that every hour you or your employee works is you losing money. 
all of a sudden you get really good at controlling scope creep. Yeah. So um, that's great for the software side. Uh, we're, we're not, the software that we develop isn't for saving money for the, the client. Um, it's really trying to find new revenue and uh, grow their income. Yep. So it's, I mean, a different problem. They don't have anything to lose. They only have things to gain. Right. And so when in a conversation like that, the, conver the conversation is like, okay, why are you talking to me? So, you, so uh, how do we want to do this? So you're, you be the client and I'm you and you brought me in to talk to you. Why? Yeah. Why, why are you talking to me or people like me? I heard you were the best is what they usually tell me. <laughs> <laughs> nice. And I, I they said you're expensive, but worth it. <laughs> so uh, that's great. And I love the sense of humor that does help a lot in these kinds of conversations. Um, I would drill into that. I would say, well, who, who's that's awesome. Who can I thank? And they yeah. would, maybe they would be able to tell me and I'd say, oh, right. We did that thing where we moved a needle that contributed to a, a big downstream success for that company. And what you want to find out is, because unless you're like a frontline salesperson, you're probably not going to have any direct impact on revenue. It might, maybe if you're doing a cost cutting type of thing or streamlining, you could, but in a scenario like you're describing, anybody that's upstream from revenue, like, you know, way upstream, like branding people and strategy people and, and, you know, real designers, like high-end designers and, you know, position, blah, 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 all that high-end stuff. It's like, well, how do we know that this new logo is going to translate into um, going from 10 million a year to 25 million a year or this new brand strategy? And it's not, it's not, up. it's like, great question. You tell me. So for consumer brands, in our experience, this is why we stay far away from consumer brands, is they already know that works. It's, it's harder to convince a B2B type business that, you know, rebranding, repositioning, uh, figuring out what their niche is, really driving it down um, and, uh, and then sharing that story. The story is what is part of our process and, and then telling and developing and telling the why they do what they do. Um, that's where the, it, it all gets mushy for them. They're like, ah, that doesn't make sense. Um, how, how would that even equate to revenue, new revenue coming in? And often what we'll find is, um, it takes about 18 months for us just educating the client, potential client at that point to, okay, now we get it. Now we, now we want to spend the money. How do we get started? Okay. So when, when people come to you, what do they think you do? Like if, 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 if one of your past clients was recommending you to me, they would say, oh, you got to hire these, this, what? marketing firm digital transformation agency like what is yeah. it yeah marketing firm i guess would be the best to describe us but all right so uh, why would anyone uh, sorry why would anyone talk to a marketing firm so like you're talking to high level executives they are busy people why would they spend an hour of their day talking to you there's a reason what's the reason yeah it's, it's they have a problem they have a problem somewhere in their business and uh they've they're not coming to us first. They're, they're coming to somebody else. And, and it's usually another client of ours that we've done a great job for. And they're explaining this, the problem to them. <laughs> mm -hmm. And, you know, they don't necessarily want to hear it. It's like a buddy of theirs, or they've met at a trade show or a conference or something. And, mm -hmm. and our, our firm comes up, you should, you should go talk to these guys and tell them your problem. And that's kind of the introduction happens. We have a one page website nice, and it's really a go away website. Yeah. Good. <laughs> There's maybe 70 words on it. Mm -hmm. um, we just haven't had time uh, to build it out. No, that's actually not a bad thing. So, so, okay. So you're, so you get referred. So like your past client is talking to a potential new client and recognizes that the potential client has a problem that you solved for the past client. That was confusing, but is that accurate? Yeah. Okay. What is the problem that the new person is describing that the old person recognized? Yeah. So a lot of times it comes down to brand and how they're telling their story to their potential clients, which are also businesses. Mm -hmm. So without getting into our uh, client list, there's a particular company who does uh, 
kitchen builds out build outs for restaurants mm-hmm. and they pitch some of the largest chains you know, just just facts is yeah. they pitch the largest chains in the country mm-hmm. in the united states and they go through and do not one or two restaurant build outs they build out full stadiums and and uh, coliseums um, they they work on hotels they work um they don't really touch mom and pops they're they're a, they're a chain type of outfit mm-hmm. and the funniest thing they probably bring in about 12 billion dollars a year in revenue and they were having a presentation deck issue they didn't know how to tell a story they built it out in word and we came in and understood what they were asking for and we showed them a sample of what what could possibly be and they loved it mm-hmm. and this is like more of a regional office this wasn't even the corporate office that deck got sent around the country and now they're using it everywhere <laughs> um, the free one uh, the, no not even the free one so they, they paid us for for our work oh, on, on okay. the full deck okay but you know, this came from a regional, small little regional office that got sent up the ladder, sent up the ladder to the corporate headquarters. Mm-hmm. And now they're using it company-wide throughout the whole region. Now, if I had priced it for the headquarters, it, we'd, we'd be having a very different conversation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. But we, you know, we, I personally find a lot, a lot of pride in being able to, to tell those types of stories because it, helps those clients so much it just if they only if we can only just look teach them this one little thing they'll they'll uh, figure a lot more out on their own and oh man yeah it's, it's so satisfying yeah it's like you unlocked this genie or something it's like you unlocked the treasure chest so and you're the key how much does the key cost yeah. right nobody nobody else's key works so you know it's based on how much treasure is in there that's how much the key is worth. And sometimes we don't even know how much it's worth. Yeah, you, know, you can always scope it out, right? But at the end of the day, you don't know what the actual effect's gonna be. We're not fortune tellers. And that's why you can't charge the full amount. Yeah. You discount it by uncertainty, you discount it for risk, you discount it for the fact that you can't guarantee that this slide, de- uh, yeah, this deck is going to double your revenue. Like you don't know that, you can't control it, and that's why you can't charge six billion dollars for the slide deck but if they believe to get to pull it back to this sort of you know friend of a friend who referred you the question becomes you want to see what the connection is in their mind between the thing they want you want to find out what they want and you want to find out why they think you might be the key to unlocking it like what is the reason in their mind that they think it's worth spending an hour of their precious time investigating this key why do they think that? There's a connection in there. And it, it could be as simple as your this past client just swore up and down that this this is the thing to do. So you say, okay, so what we did for them was X, Y, and Z. Um, do you believe that that would help move you know move you along? If it, so you use the word convince a while back, which is uh, not my favorite. I wouldn't try and convince anybody of anything. I would say you convince me that we can satisfy you. That's because I want I want 100% customer satisfaction. It drives me crazy when I don't satisfy a customer. It keeps me up yeah. nights. So I want to have some level of confidence before I get into this situation that I have a chance and pro- hopefully a good chance of satisfying this client. And if I don't feel that confidence, I'm not going to take them on. I'm not going to write the proposal. I don't want to find out the hard way and then feel like I should give their money back or have a fight with them or something. I want to be reasonably confident you know, I know what I'm doing. I want to be reasonably confident that this customer is satisfiable in a way that is within my capabilities. I can't double their revenue with a slide deck, but what can I guarantee? I could probably guarantee things like um, your salespeople will be able to deliver the this presentation clearly in 15 minutes to any buyer in your market, and they will understand your value proposition. You can test for that, and you could probably guarantee it just by, you know, like, getting those people involved in the process so you could say in the in the meeting the the slide deck meeting you know what do you think dear mr prospective client what do you think would happen if these 18 month sales cycles 
where people are just not getting it, what would happen if you could collapse that down to 15 minutes and at the end of the 15 minutes, the customer clearly understands your value proposition, not that they're going to buy, but they clearly understand it. They're comparing you to the right alternatives and not comparing you to the wrong things. What would that do for your bottom line? What would that do for the confidence of your sales staff? What would that do for productivity of your sales staff? How many more clients could you see per year if your existing sales team, you know, if you collapsed their time commitment by a factor of five, would these things be valuable? Yeah, they would. Okay. And you can guarantee those things. You can, or at least you can have a high degree of certainty that those will be business outcomes that you can provide. Right. I, I mean, I'm putting words in your mouth, but I would imagine that's true. Yeah. Very much right. true. Yeah. So you could theoretically value price that you could also productize it. And since you're going in a product direction, that's almost kind of an interesting approach to productize it and have it segmented based on the buyer. So it's kind of like value pricing in groups, the way maybe an airline would do it, where, you know, if you self-select into first class, you're going to pay $3,000. If you self-select into business, you're going to pay 1500. If you self-select into coach, you're going to pay 500. Oh, it's funny you mentioned that because that's part some of the strategy we use with with our clients for their clients they see these different levels they're like well no i deserve the higher level because i need it mm -hmm. <laughs> i didn't even know i wanted it but now i do right when i compare it to the other two this is the one that i would prefer and and you know maybe the money is just not that relevant you yeah. know it's it, even though it might be double or triple or more it's like well money's not the big concern i want the experience to be better we also have to be careful with the productizing the service, right? Because then it becomes commoditized. Mm, uh, say more. So uh, when you're comparing, oh, I can't really be specific for your trading, right? Uh, but say website design, we'll just make it basic. Mm -hmm. I need a five page website. All right, well, that'll be this much. Oh, no, yeah, yeah, no, no, I would, nah, not like that. So. Some, I've seen people use something called menu pricing. I think that's what it's called, yeah. where they're like, each page of the website's $1,000. Each logo is twenty five, you know, 2500 Each, you know, where they're picking and choosing like a buffet. Yeah. Nickeling dime. That's yeah. bad. That is, yeah. I think that's bad. I, the, you could, in theory, build a business in that way, but that's not what we're talking about. This That's not an expertise-based business. So if you bundle together like an ideation workshop or some kind of strategy two-day strategy retreat. It's more like that. So like, it's not, it, it might be difficult even to find another marketing agency that would do something packaged in that way. Certainly it'd be, there are going to be fewer of them that have the foresight to package things together like that. And then once you have that thing, the other thing is what you'd need to do, no matter what business is, you need to differentiate from the competitors in a way that's meaningful to your ideal buyers. So you always have to do that anyway. So it, it would be, it, if those pieces are in place, any business wants to have those pieces in place for service business to productize. I don't, I've never seen it. I've never seen like brand damage to them. Like this is commodity apples to apples. I can compare this directly to IDO's version of this or whatever. Oh, I can almost compare it. So when it does harm the business, that's where actually we come in because they've failed with another agency. We come in and fix a lot of the issues that uh, were built. Hmm, that's interesting. It's really, really easy to mess up a brand. <laughs> hmm. And what we tell clients is that it's really, uh, it's a lot easier to develop a good brand into something that's memorable. Uh, but if, if there's issues with the brand, like say you have horrible customer service and mm -hmm. the customer service person just hangs up you every time you call in or something, something ridiculous that harms the brand. Everything goes back to the, the attachment to the brand. Um, every, uh, it's a total of all touch points that a particular customer might have with a brand is their idea of how they feel about something mm -hmm. for that brand. Sure. So we often come in and we'll, we'll end up fixing that. So that could place back to your, your point about, uh, reducing costs for a particular client. Uh, but yeah, that's, that's a lot of the times what we do for the website portion, uh, the SaaS product that we're developing. It's designed to really focus on speed uh, for mobile applications. So you you think you wrote those books with O'Reilly, 
in the mo- mobile development world being responsive. Mm-hmm. We're, we take that and we, we take it a step further. We actually um, have testing to test the website, make sure it loads within you know one second. Mm-hmm. And to be able to have that responsiveness improves the brand image. And a lot of these, um, especially for B2B, because they're so far behind yeah. for marketing, it's really easy to go and look. Let's just load up your site. Let's do a speed test. Oh, it took 17 seconds for your website to load. Um, do you think your client's going to, or your uh, potential customer is going to get frustrated with that? Like, absolutely. <laughs> Why do yeah. we have such a slow website? I've always, I've always hated our website. You should redesign our website. <laughs> it's, mm-hmm. and it, it ends up going in that conversation. Um, so yeah, we, we fix a lot of issues that come uh, from them hiring other firms. Mm-hmm. Okay. I mean, that's, that's interesting. It's it uh, from a productization standpoint. So for the problem with productized services, uh, in my experience, is not that it, commoditization. It's more that you're just leaving money on the table that you could have perhaps grabbed if you value priced each engagement individually. So the trade off with a productized service is that you are you're making the sale process much much easier. So the process, so if you have a sales team, a productized service would be like, hmm, why would we do that? But if you're a 10 person, 15 person fine liquor dev shop who has no salespeople and I, you know, when someone says to you, hey, what if people could just like check out on your website and give you $15,000 for this thing that you know is a fixed scope, then man, instead of having meeting after meeting after meeting and scope, 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 and then having a project and the project, you know, maybe going out of control and risk, all the risk, risk, risk. So for certain people, a productized service is really interesting. Uh, it's also a stepping stone into product. You already have a product idea, but it's also, it can be a stepping stone into a product where you create a productized service and then you automate the whole thing and now you have a SaaS or well, even if it's a one-off purchase. So anyway, it's, it's yeah. uh, if we're getting back to like what would I do if I was going to go back and, you know, transition if I could go back in time and transition the firm, uh, it would look like it would look like more productized services and just waiting, knowing what a dream value pricing client looks like when they walk through the door, and then value pricing that, and then trying to get more dream clients like that to walk through the door. Yeah, I think uh, Ryan Berman would call those whales. So go go look for a whale, two hundred k, get it up front, <laughs> build mm-hmm. whatever they think. That's a model. Yep. That's a model. Get, you know, have a couple projects a year, you know, solo person, have a couple projects a year, maybe three projects a year, you know, all six figures, no employees. Yeah. So I do have a question Mm -hmm. uh, about the front payment. How did you come up with that? Oh, that's directly Alan Weiss advice. So that piece is the concept there is that it's so unusual that it will almost certainly be the thing that they negotiate instead of the price. So it gives you something to concede in a negotiation without lowering your fees. So you would never redline that requirement? Um, Never. um, It depends on your risk tolerance. So as the seller, right? So I I wouldn't want a million dollars paid to me upfront. I would actually want that spread out. You know, so if the, if the, engagement was so gigantic and there was no way to phase it. You know, honestly, there probably is a way to phase it. And that's what I would do instead is phase the project. But if for some reason it needed to be all in, you know, like we are going to create a virtual or augmented reality mobile application for mobile phones in, oh, I don't know. I can't even think of a retailer. Best Buy. Best Buy is going to create an AR app that their customers can use to shop the store, you know, wayfinding, they're going to remove all signage and then you're just going to, and all salespeople and people are just going to walk through the store with this Best Buy app and it's going to integrate with all their backend, all that stuff. Like there's just be hard to phase that. Uh, it would take a really, really long time there. That's a big bite. Yeah, so, rest in peace, Apple Beacon. <laughs> funny. <laughs> um, so yeah, I mean, I would probably pass on that job. I'd be like, you know what? I don't want the pressure. I don't want the risk. The money, money's nice, but I don't, I don't need to be worrying about that. 
you know, as a solo, as a solo person mm-hmm. taking, I think, you know, the, the biggest, I would start to feel uncomfortable at a half a million. It's like, eh, let's phase that up. I, I even, even, um, I've had, I've had ones where people were like, yeah, it's 200 grand. And I'd just be like, eh, let's do it in three payments. Let's do it in four payments or whatever. And, you know, but, but in general, in general, it's, I think a great starting point, unless you've got some good reason not to, I would, I guess I would put it like this. My default stance is to put it in at a hundred upfront thinking you're probably going to have to change it. Um, and if you don't, and a surprising number of times I'd never, a surprising number of times I did not have to negotiate that point. They just say checks in the mail. But if, you know, it gives you something to talk about, gives you something to concede ne- negotiation uh, without lowering the price. So that's, that's why that's there. We have something a little similar to value pricing. Well, it wouldn't be necessarily value pricing, but the, the collection of payment. Mm-hmm. We set minimums, mm-hmm. so you, we won't even discuss a project unless it's twenty five grand. Yeah, exactly. Same here. And and then monthly, kind of like a retainment uh, service. Uh, so we're there as an expert throughout the process, and mm-hmm. that's a monthly, say like twenty five hundred bucks a month. Yep. And allows us to you know cover our costs for time and uh, educating the client on these new newer technologies that they just haven't had any exposure to. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is just nice it's they they understand the value that they're getting out of it and and uh we're able to cover our costs mm-hmm. yeah i mean you've probably heard me say before that i i at certain points stopped doing projects and only started just doing advisory retainers and mm-hmm. that was that was an amazing period i was like i could spend all of my time keeping super up to date on the cutting edge of of mobile technology from every angle and really, really test it out, you know, kick the tires, maybe even code some demos just so I really understood, you know, whatever it was, it could have been, you know, the Pebble API for, you know, the <laughs> first batch of smartwatches or, you know, Alexa, building Alexa skills and, you know, whatever security stuff, all these different things, obviously responsive design and all that, uh, but that was earlier. And then, you know, just keeping my finger on the pulse of the state of the art and then and then taking my knowledge of my, you know, two or three concurrent advisory retainer clients and being like, how does this matter for this client who's in the photography space? Does any of this matter? And so I could filter, sift through all that stuff and pull out the diamonds that were like, you guys need to look at this, you know, the AR kit or something or like face, facial recognition that, you know, those, those, these are going to be amazing. Or maybe we should get rid of SLRs and just buy iPhones, you know? for various reasons uh, it comes a science for a project even like oh, we don't know if this is going to work but what if it does <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right yeah especially it's, on the branding side uh, yeah pretty cool experiences you can make now with technology and it's just blowing up so much yeah it's I, I i don't even know what i would be there's so many things going on in tech i can't even i don't even know if i was still doing that stuff there's too many things to focus on it's amazing between AI and crypto and it's just crazy. Yeah. Well, do we have one more, uh, some time for one more question? Yeah, please. Uh, comes back to what you're doing today. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if you weren't doing, obviously you're not doing software development anymore, maybe an advisory, but why coaching? Why, what, what made you get into this? You know, was it, was it hourly billing all the way? Um, but, uh, getting people off of that, uh, the uh, addiction, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the gilded hamster wheel, as Rochelle calls it. And the, if you weren't coaching, what would you be doing instead? Oh, um, I go through these. I go through these phases, like ten or twelve years. Like my superpower is knowing what I want to do. I, I work with enough people to know that that's pretty rare. Like when I see my next big thing, I immediately get. I'm like, oh, this is it. Yeah, this is it. And you know, for a while it was music. I took that really seriously for a long time. Then it was a software development phase where, where you know, I had been working on computers since the 80s, but I, I never got paid to do it until I was in my 20s. And then I took that super seriously for, another, you know, another 10, 12 years. Mobile happened. I'm like, this is it. So I got into mobile for like another 10-ish years. And, you know, it was at the top of the S-curve. I was getting bored of it. All the new phones were basically the same. You know, there was the 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 web two companies had basically taken over the walled gardens were up and it wasn't fun anymore. It just wasn't, it wasn't that interesting. And I looked at, I looked at, 
you know, voice stuff and AI and ML and, and VR and all. And I was like, I'm just gonna blockchain. I was like, do I really want to get on this like hype cycle wave again? Just ride the hype cycle into the next thing and then the next thing and then the next thing. Now it's and, web three. Yeah. Which another one I'm like, oh, it's like, it's, it's worth reading about. It's got my attention. It's very, there's some, there's a couple of really interesting things about blockchain that I, you know, that if you try and dig through all the hype and the spam, there's like some really interesting things that could happen. But that aside, I was just not excited about it. And I was like, but I, I knew I was excited about this sort of, wasn't even a side hustle, but enough people had, you know, like, can I please pay you to coach me how to do this stuff? And I'm like, that's a good signal. <laughs> and I had a lot of fun doing it. And it felt much bigger picture, felt more evergreen. It was just more fun. It was just, it felt like um, I've always loved writing. I knew it was going to involve a lot of writing. And so I was like, yeah, I'm just going to, I'm going to write about this from now on until maybe the next 12 year cycle ends. And I'm like, eh, I've said all I can say here. I've, I've laid the groundwork. The, the material is, the material is out there. The podcast episodes are out there. Do I really need to be saying the same thing over again? for another decade, maybe, maybe, but I'm, if knowing me at some point, I'm going to get shiny object syndrome for the next decade and, and I'll pivot or something. We'll see. So what would I be doing? Watch this space. <laughs> NFTs. Stay I don't know. Tuned. <laughs> right. Stay That's tuned. Great. It could very well be helping agencies tr with employees transition. Cause there's, we didn't even talk about like, if you did, how would you, ins I, I, the, the way that I would want to, the model that I've only seen once that I think is the most appropriate model for employee incentivization, incent I, that doesn't sound right today, but for incentivizing employees in a value-based model either feels like some kind of significant profit sharing like you already described, but the other one is, the other one is that they, you don't worry about utilization, employee util utilization, which is heresy. You don't worry about that. And when they accomplish the, when they deliver the outcomes that you requested of them, they can go home, they can punch out, they get the rest of the week off. So it, that puts the, that aligns the incentives between you and the client and the employee and you, where you just want this stuff done as, as fast as possible without sacrificing quality or whatever the parameters are. Maybe you do want something so, you know, fast, quick and dirty. We just need quick and dirty, do it quick and dirty. And, and you can go home for the rest of the month or whatever it is. But I think that that's where I would experiment with someone who, if someone really wanted to experiment with value-based employees, <laughs> or I don't know what to call it, it would look like that, where, where when they're done, they're done. But when they're not done, they're not going home. So be very careful what you agree to employ. The power is yours. Yeah, and you can't really get away with that for tax reasons. <laughs> well, with contractors, you might be able to, I, the, it boils down to, I don't think value pricing and employees makes a lot of sense. I don't think so either. It has to come to with like a bonus incentive system, right? So probably it's like, if you're value, you're, if you're using value pricing, you're trying to scale your, in your business in a way that doesn't need more employees. So, so that's where the sticking point is for a lot of people who have employees is I think they, they're automatically, they automatically can't see that that firing everyone might make the most sense right because they've been trying to scale their hands and now if they're going to scale their brains well these people are all juniors you know let's just say you've got a bunch of mini me's that that code rails apps and you're a great rails person you attracted a lot of attention you wrote a popular book you have tons of clients more work than you can take instead of increasing your fees you took on all of this low value work so now you're swamped so you hire a bunch of mini me's to code it. Well, they're not, they don't have your expertise. You can't sell their brains in, in this situation. So it, it's a little bit of a, it's two different business models fighting against each other. But if for whatever reason you need to have this giant impact and you, you have to do it with a team, then it's like, okay, if I was going to align the incentives, it would probably, like you said, look like bonuses. Um, or, yeah. And like, I, like you brought up, I've never tested this with anyone, but it seems like you'd have to stop worrying about utilization and, and then, you know, figure something out. Well, you, let them, you let can't them stop early. utilization though. You have to keep going. It's it, kind of interesting how the, the law firms actually set up their, their programs. So they'll have, you know, associates the, the first year, second year, and eventually you start getting into the partners and see senior level partners. They all have different shares of the actual law firm itself. It's a partnership. 
So they ended up getting bonuses through distributions. You have to stay with the company for long enough to be able to do that. You mm-hmm. also have to bring a new business. So by training mini me's, yeah, you're giving them the skills and it takes time to, to bring them through that. But then you're, they get to a skill level enough to where they can go out. They're, they're sitting in those meetings with clients, bringing them in and themselves now are going to bring clients in. Yeah. It just feels like a Ponzi scheme to me. <laughs> it's like, I mean, I know it's not, uh, but just our MLM, you know, it's the way it, it feels like the old way to build an organization. It doesn't feel like, but maybe it's just me because I'm, you know, I'm biased in that direction. Well, how is it any different than say, um, two solopreneurs getting together and starting a company together? I think that's like, a bad idea too. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a, but I'm an outdoor cat, right? So like, yeah. that's my personal bias. And that's why I think historically I've wor- worked uh, best with soloists and small firms because all of the all of that culture stuff I don't have a lot of patience for. Yeah, it takes a lot of time, a lot of effort. Mm-hmm. I, f- well, I feel like back to branding. I feel like making the inc- I feel like the incentives. I feel like inspiring employees to be their best on your behalf. I feel like these days the move would be more of a more of a SpaceX kind of thing, like where we are going to change the world or climate change or real mission driven and that people will, you know, once they, you know, reach that say $75,000, like bare minimum trying to get by the, the adding of dollars on top of that, it has diminishing returns very quickly. So whatever the number is, there's some number over which extra dollars don't really, aren't really worth the loss of like family time or autonomy and, at a certain mm-hmm. point, it's just like, yeah, I got a raise, and then it wears off really fast. I feel like the, I feel like if I was going to hire a bunch of employees, I would want to have like this really persuasive, powerful mission that they were super passionate about, and, and not underpay them because I know that they're passionate about it. But you know, but but f- deal with things like employee churn, revolving doors, morale, um, crunch times. It, I don't feel like money, I guess it depends on what level economic spectrum we're talking about, but I don't feel like money is the best solution to that. I think it's a solution to it. It's, it's at, at best, it's just one solution to it. Yeah, that's probably why we're kind of getting into product development. Uh, the SaaS product is, we don't really have to even sell it. We just have to make a really good product. And it'll sell itself. <laughs> but it's, think think of any you know look at something as simple as like gmail um google has been providing it for free for what 20 years now mm-hmm. and they just recently converted into to a business model where it's selling itself there's no other comparable uh, email product out there you can try microsoft but a lot of the stuff doesn't talk to each other you have integration issues. It doesn't, um, there's a lot of security issues. Um, I, I might be getting a little too, too into it, but, uh, if, if, you know, and this, another thing that we talk to clients about is all good marketing, great marketing, even all it does is make good products succeed faster and bad ones fail faster. That's it. <laughs> so we could be the best marketing firm for you, but if your product doesn't um, if it's not useful, if it's, it's not contributing um, to improving somebody's life, anything. Mm. If it's not a good product, we're just going to make it fail faster. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. There's a that perhaps apocryphal story of the Domino's pizza the agency. It was just like oh, they investigated for a while and they're like, this pizza, we can't sell this pizza. It's terrible. And they actually, you know, changed the recipe. I, just, I don't know if that's true or not, but I, I think it's a great story regardless. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, it's funny you mentioned Domino's. I, I keep thinking about Domino's in, in examples of, no, you need accessibility. Look at Domino's. Look what happened. <laughs> Did you see the $1 billion accessibility lawsuit? No. Mm-mm. Yeah. It's kind of the next iteration from responsive development is accessibility. That's a lot of what we focus on as well. Fabulous. Great. Well, this has been fun. I, I need to let you get to your weekend. Recording at five on a Friday. Oh, I know, right? Beer 30. Exactly. <laughs> but this has been fun. Thanks for reaching out in the first place. Where can people go to find out more about what you're doing? Maybe your uh, your 
when your SaaS is out of beta? Yeah. So um, if you'd like to go to our website, it's uh, geogram.com. That's uh, uh, where our one page website is. Mm-hmm. And then uh, if you'd like to uh, reach out, my email is hello at geogram.com. Perfect. All right, Peter, thanks for joining me. Uh, it's always a pleasure. Cool. Have a good weekend. All right, folks, that's it for this week. I'm Jonathan Stark, and I hope you join me again next time for Ditching Hourly. Bye. Hey, Jonathan again. Do you have questions about how to improve your business? Things like value pricing your work instead of billing for your time, or positioning yourself as the go-to person in your space, or maybe productizing your services so you never have to have another awkward sales call or spend hours writing another custom proposal. Book a one-on-one coaching call with me and get answers to these questions and others in the time it takes you to get ready for work in the morning. Best of all, you're covered by my 100% satisfaction guarantee. If at the end of the call, you don't feel like it was worth it, just say the word and I'll refund your purchase in full. To book your one-on-one coaching call, go to jonathanstark.com call, C-A-L-L. That URL again is jonathanstark.com call. Hope to see you there.